Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Veronica Stanwell, a multidisciplinary healing and creative arts practitioner who weaves soma, psyche, ceremony and song into intimate gatherings for connection, healing and growth. Driven by a longing for a collective shift towards nature awe, eco-imagination and rekindled interconnectedness, Veronica is the founder of Rooted Healing, an organisation that helps heal and connect inner and outer landscapes through transformational gatherings in nature, cross-cultural wisdom exchange and somatic and transpersonal workshops. Offering legal and unique ceremonial psilocybin retreats in the Netherlands, ancestral immersions in her homeland of Wales, and many other gatherings that re-indigenise and re-root people back into the land, Veronica's mission is to cultivate the kind of profound belonging that ends habits and systems of harm and instills an embodied remembrance of what it means to be creative, human and alive. As part of a growing collection of resources and projects, Veronica also hosts the wonderful Rooted Healing podcast, which explores how we can heal, reimagine and co-create a thriving world. With an MSc in Consciousness, Spirituality and Transpersonal Psychology with the Aleph Trust, Veronica's animist embrace of life permeates her explorations into expanded states of consciousness, both within indigenous traditions of the Americas and her own personal inquiries into Europe's native ways. Drawing upon a background in professional theatre that continues to guide her work, Veronica's approach is one that carries deep reverence for the power of story, music, expression, catharsis and playfulness. As a movement teacher with roots in dance, yoga and somatics, she's currently developing a modality based on animistic ideas that invokes playful inquiry into the inspirited, interdependent body-mind. Ronnie, it's lovely to be in conversation with you. You are, you're in Munich this morning. Yes, I am. And I'm so excited to be chatting with you. <laughs> <laughs> this is like our third conversation. And um, I want to start with the question that I like to open conversations with on the show, which is what do you think is going on in the global human psyche in this moment? Yeah, mm, I've really enjoyed listening to what everyone replies to this question on your podcast. <laughs> I feel... It's obviously such a challenge to try to speak for the global we, and I think that's something we should all be trying to do more of. How can we say we and mean mm. everyone, every single human being? Um, I think there's this sort of overloading of information, and it's almost as though our imaginal spaces are filling up to the brim. So much input is coming from so many different directions, and you look back and you see how we would have been in communities of maybe a hundred people. We would have been around storytellers and the elders and 
We would have known our landscapes and that was our input. And in such a short space of time, we now have so much input. We know so many things about what's going on in the world. And that results in either a numbing out, in overwhelm, in anxiety, in existential dread. And at the same time, I wonder if we're also beginning to really connect as a human family. I feel like there's so much conflict still happening. There's so much suffering. But I like to think that there's signs that we're beginning to thread together in the way that mycelium does. Mm. And it's funny that you have tech as one of your focuses on the show because I think that technology, despite being a part of why we're feeling overloaded and a part of that just overwhelm, um, of plugging in in that way, I think it's going to be a huge part of our solution, being able to plug in and be together across the whole world, see all those lines light up just like the mycelium does. So I don't know, I think people are hungry and yearning and whether we're compensating that with having over being or whether we're compensating through all the different activities, faiths, um, whatever it is, we're, we're all yearning for that togetherness and that belonging and that sense of, of really knowing what it is to be alive and be human upon this earth. That's a hard question to answer. <laughs> you answered it beautifully. And it's, it's, um, there are things in your answer that, that I've not heard people share before. And I think one of the images that's really potent is the, the fool to brimming over in terms of input and in some of our previous chats we've talked about the role of art and music and creativity and I think when you describe this sometimes it feels like a torrent of input other times it's just constant dripping of notifications of emails whatever it might be but there seems to be an occupation of our inner space that just doesn't let us or at least as I'm speaking from my own experience that just doesn't let us sink back and rest so that even when we are trying to rest which we need to be able to listen to inner muses or, or yearnings. You mentioned yearnings. But we don't really have the spaciousness to be able to listen and plug into that. So there seems to be something there also around our yearning for something, filling up with this other stuff, which is in large part, I would suggest, noise. And then how do we turn down the volume of input or the quality or the type of input to enable ourselves to actually sense into that deeper connection to feel like we are connecting again to place to community to mm. one another to to perhaps more sacred but by that I also mean the physical world sacred space like physical tangible space and seeing it as imbued with something other than just data mm. mm -hmm. yeah I love that Creating space is such a challenge in this day. You know, we've been so conditioned and we're, we are imbued in this system of productivity and perpetual growth. And it, it feels like a race. And to disembark from that race, to stop and pause and create space in your life and to remember, I really think that it's a remembering of how to be, how to be that feels alive, that feels connected. It's really hard mm. to create that dance within our lives because we also have to function in, in what is happening in our world. 
I think health is one of the main things that can happen or an, an interruption, a disturbance to our well-being is one of the main things that can happen that can force that stopping, can force us into cultivating our spaciousness. And whether that's what we call burnout, whether that's, um, you know, chronic health problems, I think we're all in some way experiencing some level of our bodies speaking, shouting, screaming, please stop, let's rethink, please connect, be still, slow down. And it's, um, this slowing down is calling us to redirect our attention. You know, if being is the fundamental state of the universe, which I, I believe it is, I think I experience is the fundamental reality. We have this scientific paradigm that reduces everything down into its simplistic sense we can break things apart, take things apart and say, okay, well, this works like this, this, or this. But we're doing all of that through our experience, our perception. And yet we're unable to bring that perception and experience into our understanding of reality. Mm. It's called the explanatory gap in the study of consciousness, right? And so I think being an experience is the fundamental reality. And with that, our awareness, our experience of ourselves is directing that being. So how can we, how can we create more space? How can we stop overflowing the brim of our imagination? I think we have to come back to the simple ways of being together because it's, it's through relationship that we experience ourselves and it's through the land, it's through our connection, it's through our food, our nourishment, through being together, through the elements that we come into that pure being state where we're not always thinking if we can stop that kind of patterned thinking in the default mode network if we can come back into as Ian McGilchrist talks about the right brain and the left brain and it's really fascinating his research if we come back into that more right brain the left brain's really been dominating with the analytical thought and the um, ability to really focus in on specific things, to, to be experts in something. We've created a culture of needing to be expert. If we come up back into the state of uh, being receptive to the bigger picture, to the patterns of nature, to the cyclical ways of being, then we'll be able to access that deeper programming of what it is to be human, what it is to be imaginative and be creative Hmm. One of the threads I want to pull on is is what you're saying about the the kind of threshold moment being reached, which could be a disruption of health or burnout. And I want to take this moment to also ask you about how you've ended up walking this path with rooted healing, with the ceremonies that you hold, with a beautiful podcast that you have, because it was it's kind of yeah. I'd like to share with folks the the call to the journey that you experienced, because I think a lot of people will find resonance in that. Hmm. Yeah, it's been <laughs> in some ways just a total U-turn to my childhood. And I want to really honor, despite the complicated relationship I have with my mother and the intense, um, you know, I, I will I use the word trauma from my childhood that I do think was one of the reasons my chronic illness manifested in the first place. I really want to honor that early part of my life where I was just absolutely woven into the rugged Welsh land 
and really into the wild spaces of that land in such a visceral way. And that's because of my mother and she worked in conservation and really um, we had a sort of small farm that was an old fashioned kind of farm that really intertwined nature and wildlife into the importance of the land and um, was a beautiful harmony of agriculture and wildlife. And so I spent my childhood rummaging around badger dens and <laughs> through bluebell woods and building um, fairy houses and riding horses. And it wasn't in a kind of regal, upper class kind of way. It was in a almost a sort of gypsy, <laughs> uh, barefooted, wild and free kind of way. Mm. And I then went off. I was always been so entranced by story and the perspective of other and putting myself into other people's shoes and, and playing, I suppose. And so that led me to a career in theatre. And, you know, <laughs> a career in theatre, I suppose, led me into this cycle of mm, surface level hustle and self-image and competition and I just I lost sense of meaning I've had beautiful moments in theatre but living in London and being in a phase that where I was out of work and um, having just ongoing issues with my health and then it just it just started to crash it just started to implode and I became so unwell I had cancer when I was 20 so that was right after graduating and that was obviously a huge process and I, I think I went into that like a fighter like this is my heroine story that I'm this is going to be part of my story and I'm going to hold myself throughout this experience but this second round it being 25 at the time was so much more terrifying because it was my mental health it was my physical health it was the health of my life my lifestyle everything was crumbling um, and I started hearing the whispers of um, plant medicines hmm. and indigenous traditions. And I thought, wow, how interesting, especially as someone who'd been, um, I, I've had a lot of intervention, medical intervention. And on one hand, I'm extremely grateful because who knows where I'd be without it. I've had tumors removed from me. I've had, um, you know, all kinds of medications, all kinds of emergency moments, and on the other hand, I can also really recognise how intervention in the first place may have also been a massive contributor to those moments. I mean, being put on antibiotics at the age of four with kidney problems, you know, when actually I was surrounded by nettles and dock leaves and um, lots of plant allies that would have probably helped my kidneys in a much more gentle way. And so anyway, just to observe that there was this real kind of dependence on that system and to think that there was another way. And so I, I listened to those whispers. I've always been very guided by my dreams. And I had this incredibly vivid, lucid dream where I was in an ayahuasca ceremony. And I didn't even know that it was a brew. I had no, I, I just knew that there was a plant out there that made you vomit <laughs> and hallucinate. Um, <laughs> and I, I was at, I really hate being sick. So I would kind of, I thought, no, maybe not that one, maybe some magic <laughs> mushrooms or something at some point. Um, but I had this dream and this pair of hands handed me this brew and I drank it and I became lucid in the dream. And I became aware that I was suddenly in my bed in London 
at the time and um, these beautiful Aztec images started mm. coming to me. And one was this eagle made out of sort of light, Aztec patterns of light, and it and its eyes were piercing directly into mine. It flew into me and I felt a full body ecstatic vibration. The next was a jaguar. The next was a huge bird. It looked like a, a kind of vulture. And they all flew into me and I felt this, honestly, it was orgasmic. And I told a friend who had been and done ayahuasca in Ecuador about this dream. And he said, you have to go. I was like, oh, money, you know, I can't go traveling. I can't leave the acting scene. What was going to happen? And he's like, you have to go. You've had this dream. And, you know, there's there's so many things I'm hearing you in conversations. So anyway, I felt very guided to a center, went to Ecuador, felt, you know, didn't speak a word of Spanish. And um, I absolutely fell in love with the traditions and... At the same time, whenever, you know, sharing stories like this into spaces, I really do want to just flag that this isn't for everyone. And there is a massive dark side to plant medicine and to shamanism or these different traditions. But I've had an extremely life-changing situation and it just, you know, it's one of those experiences you can't put into words. But I received that as a participant and then I said, well, can I volunteer I stayed for a retreat and then they offered me a job and I stayed for almost a year Um, and really supporting ceremonies, learning about the sacred fire, um, sitting and supporting ceremonies outside of them as well and just being surrounded by the stories of people from all different walks of life coming together and really thinking, okay, this is something special this is this is important this work and what really took me by surprise was that it wasn't just the medicine and the altered states it was the art of ceremony and togetherness this ancient art of sitting in circle and the beautiful different etiquettes and I am speaking of um, ceremonies from the red road traditions and we also had schwa shamans working with us as well but just to say that not all ceremonies are like that but our ones were sitting in the circle with a very strong etiquette of how you move through that space, how you act in that space, um, the songs that are shared, the way the fire's maintained, and every small detail to think of those early ancestors and how they crafted those spaces, and they were guided by the plants. And that's often the way with indigenous cultures is that they're receiving this guidance from the plants. These are not human-made interventions. They're a real collaboration with the more-than-human kin. And that was amazing for me to think that actually, even if you're not entering an altered state of consciousness in this space, you are healing just by being together and by being with Grandfather Fire and by being with these songs that have carried through the oral traditions this beautiful lineage of belonging, of healing, of pure-heartedness and to experience song after being in theatre for so many years, to experience song that was a pure expression of the heart. That was a game changer for me as well. 
And that helped me free up my voice. And so the part of the health crisis I entered at that time was an autoimmune condition called Graves' disease. And I still, I'm in remission. And I really believe that this remission, I've been in remission for almost a year now, is the result of the years I've spent away, slowing down, stopping and learning from other ways of being, other cultures, other plants, other, other lands. Um, and then coming home and the importance of coming home to my land and rekindling that childlike relationship with the land, going on long walks and sitting in those bluebells, you know, not, not wandering through constantly thinking, but going and, and entering that childlike awe and wonder. And then also deep, deep, deep nourishment and completely changing my relationship with how I'm fueling and feeding and sustaining my body and obviously all the embodiment practice. I really think it's that um, accumulation that's helping me be and stay in remission. But I, I also just want to say that it's not like I'm just better. And I was speaking with Sophie Strand on a recent um, podcast uh, about this, how healing can often imply that there's this completion and this sort of performative wellness that can happen. And what if healing isn't linear like that? What if healing... Um, maybe we need a new word for it, but it's just a deepening. It's an expanding into your experience and you might not get quote unquote better. Your sense of getting better might be just actually feeling your body dis disperse and be with the environment more. And she said something so beautiful and it really struck a chord where she said, well, what if good health is actually <laughs> not the most natural response to our guy and body that's in crisis? What if our signs of ill health are showing that we are in a symbiotic, deeper connection with that guy and body, that it's the most rational response for our bodies to also be seeking balance or be experiencing imbalance when she is experiencing imbalance. And I thought that really struck a chord because having worked with many people with cancer, I've worked um, in, in sort of charity programs with music, I think it is that sort of sensitivity that can sometimes allow these things to take place. It's that loss of boundaries, perhaps. Hmm. So yeah, it's been a long and winding road and it keeps on winding. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the, the shift in frame, though, the shift in perspective of saying, well, what if it isn't just this kind of linear path towards completion and then it's a done deal I'm thinking about that so for instance in um during Covid I ended up having the most bizarre short well it wasn't bizarre at all in hindsight of course but I was in a call with someone and I nearly ended up fainting and I couldn't work out what was happening it was a shortness of breath my dad has had very severe asthma since he was little and I've not luckily had to deal with that much in my lifetime and and I came to this this sense of of course in the moment when there's a crisis and this is nothing compared to unless it's really extreme and, you know, the shortness of breath becomes an inability to, to actually breathe at all. Um, but it's still quite a stressful experience. But that point of crisis and stress, it's a curious one where you start to understand that also part of the thing that's creating it is, in this instance, the terrible pollution levels. And you think, OK, well, back to your point about the wisdom of the body to respond to unhealthy environments, relationships, and the demand that we slow down, the demand that we feel 
and that that kind of demand creates if we if we listen to it if we're forced to or we listen to it early enough to be able to make some adjustments before we crash that it can open us up to changing how we live which then gives rise to the questioning of well how are we making our decisions about how to live how to work and obviously there is that kind of narrow bandwidth of being mindful of how we make money because that's what's bringing us food shelter etc but there is something about the way in which you do that and I find it really tricky as this persistent challenge to kind of keep circling back to which is carving out time for the rest of the really useful stuff that usually gets pushed to the edges so whether it's a meditative practice you might have or yin yoga or walking among the woods or deciding to work shorter hours if you're able to work shorter hours or spending time with your family whatever it is that gives you that sense of belonging and rootedness Mm. that kind of somehow creating a reorientation towards that so that that's the thing that you're protecting time around because I think you know it's it's, it's very easy to just say well I'll just squeeze it in Mm -hmm. here and squeeze it in there and it it, for me (laughs) it's kind of this realization that that's not enough Mm. somehow and then it's a question almost of shaking oneself loose which actually plants can really help with um psilocybin I feel in particular of just loosening the grip of the patterns that lead us into perpetual busyness to be able to choose a different rhythm and to keep choosing it until it becomes you know a lifestyle and then other people can also see that and choose differently for themselves and I'm also speaking from the fact that I I do think that there is a ripple out effect so one of the questions that comes up quite a lot also is well it's all well and good if you're in the global north and you have access to clean water, to food, mm. and your externalities are affecting people, you know, by definition, far away that you don't see, then what's the point of making these seemingly insignificant changes? But I think there is something in shifting the values that you hold that then shift the way in which you consume, that then also make you more aware of your impact on the wider web of life. So it's kind of this, it has to start somewhere, the shifting. Mm. And I think that's an important place for it to start. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on that, like the changing of lifestyle and maybe how it's affected the way that you live and the way that people respond to you. And then also back to the rooted healing, what kind of what kind of call it's putting out there to other people through your journey and, and reaching a point where you're creating space for ceremony and reconnection for others. People are seeing that beacon and saying, right, I, this is something that I want and then ferrying that back somehow into their own lives. Mm. So maybe just some reflections. I feel like I've meandered a little bit on that one. No, I love everything you're sharing. Um, I I firstly just want to speak to the lungs and the breath because the lungs in Chinese medicines are are, are the carriers of our grief. And I think grief, you know, that's such a big topic and that's such an unprocessed thing in so many of our cultures. And when, you know, we have these breathing things, I know personally when I'm stressed and when I'm not processing things and I'm not coming into my body, my first sign is that I'm, I, I have that feeling of not quite being able to take a full breath. <sighs> and yeah, and I think that's a, a real sign for us to come into our bodies and to slow down and to honour something, that's something that needs to move. And that's why breath work can be such an amazing practice. I really do think holotropic breath work, um, obviously it's one of the more aggressive breath works, but Stanislav Grof, you know, he he's so traversed in these landscapes. And it's an amazing way without having to take any medicines, without having to take anything for us to actually have that release and have a journey and and access a 
um, the different neural pathways in our brain, <laughs> about the practices. Um, yeah, there's yeah, there's so many things I want to speak to. Changing my lifestyle has been a really interesting step and I do want to honor again the privilege it it takes you know to have that choice to be able to change and I can really appreciate you can't not everyone has the ability to 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 so radically change their lives what we do have the ability to is to do is to direct our attention and I think rather than making a practice a sculpted out part of our day that that's our time to be mindful that's our time to be in our bodies can we begin perhaps we do need those practices to begin with but can we bring that awareness into everything that we're crafting can we make our entire day a ritual and not to make that a sort of pressure not to add to our day and to our busyness but can we wash the dishes and honor what we're cleaning away honor the nourishment that's just entered our bodies um can we make more times to eat in community because food is really that glue that can bring us together I know of someone I haven't met her yet personally I really want to interview on the podcast I know of her because a friend of mine moved into the street that this woman lives on and uh just you know sort of kind of council estate street of London and this woman arrives on her doorstep with seven Tupperwares of meals and says welcome to the neighborhood and she heard on the news of a uh, refugee escaping war and she, this woman gave birth on the plane. And I, I really want, I need to ask my friend, like, please, I really want to interview this woman. But she drove to the airport to pick her up. Oh. You know, who, I know, again, that takes spaciousness, that takes a lot of sacrifice in our day, but can we find more opportunities to eat together, to be together and to not be so self-focused all of the time have we got a friend that could really use being cooked for one evening um I think those are actually the practices that root us that remind us to connect and plug in and um and yeah it's important that we can come into our bodies and we can use beautiful ancient crafts like yoga breath qigong all these wonderful things I think it's so worth trying them because they're extremely effective they work. Um, I do think yoga has been really extracted from its original context, but I also can see that we are in a renaissance and we're deepening. It's our, it's in our culture, in, in I don't know, the Northern Hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, whatever you want to call it, to extract things and commodify them. And also they remain to be a gateway for us. And so through that, we can deepen. And they're extremely effective at creating more spaciousness, at helping us come into our bodies. Um, I think somatics are extremely important because a lot of yoga is actually about transcendence. So how can we actually be in our bodies? How can we learn the wisdom of our different organs? So that was one tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I wanna wind back into this like shifting the big change lifestyles and how people, you asked me how people have reacted to that. Mm. It's really interesting. So I have had deep conflict within my family, just a particular part of it, but um, People are afraid, they're afraid of what I'm doing with rooted healing of a certain generation, perhaps. And um, we're still in the massive echoes, not even echoes, we're still in Nixon's drug war on drugs. And people are very afraid of anything that can affect 
our mental state, even if the scientific evidence is shouting, this is helping humanity. Um, and that has been an area of tension. And I've got some some members of my family who think I'm just going through a hippie phase. <laughs> Ironically, I feel like I'm so unhippy. I'm spending <laughs> many of my days on Excel spreadsheets and, you know, trying to run a business <laughs> and managing different people and different spaces. And um, yeah, so creating Rooted Healing, it really came out of my own deep, deep yearning. How can I create that belonging? How can we bring people together to co-create, to weave that sense of belonging and healing back into our lives back into the collective because that's one thing I witness in in ceremonial spaces is people come from all over the world to to be in these spaces and they're going to take something back with them and you're planting seeds and that's another thing I'll probably add is that it's these small steps that can contribute to an in integrative healing journey or to deepening our lives it's not always these big grand moments but if we can plant seeds in these small steps if we can create ways to be together and ways to be outside that isn't just going for a walk because we ought to do we have children in our family or friends children of friends that we could actually create a day outside and really play with them um really be present because children they're they're so tapped in and they're so imaginative and I think to spend a day with a child and as a, as a child really allow yourself to enter that space that's one of the most beautiful practices we can have and rather than looking at the the commodification okay how can I um afford or make space to do all these things to 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 feel well and get up at 7 a.m to do yoga or whatever <laughs> um maybe we could start with with the community aspect of mindfulness or how can we uh, for example I've been spending a lot of time with my niece recently and she's been asking me to teach her to dance and I thought okay well she's really obsessed with Harry Potter at the moment so we put on Harry Potter theme track and we Aww. started acting out this glorious sort of theatrical dance <laughs> and I let her guide it and I let myself be an absolute child with her and I and at the same time I allow myself to really drop into my body oh how is this making me feel oh I'm feeling safe I'm feeling excited I'm feeling joyful um I'm feeling the blood through from my body body because she has so much energy and I can barely keep up. <laughs> and um and then at the end to bring in some of the kind of more um I don't know generic mindfulness practices to allow a moment of rest and integration. And she ran off inside to go and get a snack or something and I allowed myself to lay on the ground looking at the sky and just allow that to really land in my body. And I felt wonderful for it. Mm. And um, and she had the most wonderful time instead of just coming home from school and putting the TV on, you know. So I think those are, are ways we can begin. Mm. So one of the things you mentioned earlier, because there's so many different themes, I feel like we're kind of, there's a map of stars and they're all connected somehow. So I'm <laughs> going to pick the next ones to ask you about. Music is one of those. And the other one is about, I guess, re-indigenizing ourselves to our land so maybe actually let's stop there and I'll come back to music. So there's something in this yearning 
when we look at cultures who have somehow managed to protect and maintain traditions of connection and plant connectedness, land connectedness, ancestral connectedness, belonging to place and peoples, that we, we look at that and we go, oh, that's, well, we, some people look at that and they go, oh, that's what it is to be whole. And I know that when you start to kind of explore this space a bit more, there are a lot more layers to this. But the question that I'm really curious about is given that we live in a culture which commoditizes, which extracts, which is still steeped in kind of Roman domination patterns <laughs> that started thousands of years ago, how do we not only look to these traditions, but perhaps other traditions, traditions closer to home, and find a way to use them as gateways, but not to take them as our own, but to kind of open up the possibility for us to rediscover our own lines of meaning. So I don't know if that's clear. Is that clear as a question? Yeah. Yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I love that. Alistair McIntosh said that in an interview. We must re-indigenize ourselves to the land upon which we dwell. And he exampled, well, how do we do that? He said he's got this Galgile Trust in Glasgow where they help disadvantaged people people of hardship come together they've got a community garden they play music they cook together and that's it it's really simple oh they they have boat trips they they do these sort of boat team building days such a simple alchemy such a simple recipe to re-indigenize ourselves that can look like different things but I think what what it ultimately comes to is returning remembering kinship with land people and place R remembering how to listen to the birds and 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 hear their different personalities remembering how to cook together like we said this summer we've got ancestral which is a gathering for people to come together and embody that sense of what it would have been like for those early ancestors, pre-Roman pre mm. <laughs> ancestors who were living in community and living in that deep kinship with the land. And of course, I probably sound like I'm massively romanticizing it. I'm sure it was extremely <laughs> hard and harsh. I was recently learning about the, the Kil, uh, was it the Kildens? Um, in, in Scotland that less than a hundred years ago were evacuated from the island. How we, we had intact still indigenous group less than 100 years ago in the UK, just to say that, you know, that thread is actually so much more recent than we think. And it was extremely hard. They were eating puffins. That was their main food. I mean, wow. wow. But anyway, this gathering is to try to cultivate that remembrance of being together. And you said about music and song, that's a huge part of it. Because through song, we're expressing ourselves. And I really think that that song is a thread from our heart. It can be also be a thread from our womb. I've done a lot of women's work as well. And it's like, how can we sing from our womb and from that cyclical being state, that real primordial space? But through song, through sharing, through story, um, I think we, we're desperate for story. The sort of story that touches us, that teaches us so many lessons that we can't even quite name them, but we just let that land and, and we, we listen together and that sort of deep listening and that deep togetherness and being surrounded by the elements, hearing the sound of the river, the sound of the forest, making things, ancestral crafts or just craftsmanship in general. Um, we've got Dory Joy, who I interviewed on the podcast, and she does uh, drum making. 
or drum birthing with native hides and she works with with hides from all over the place very ethically sourced and we'll be working with deer skin and the way she can introduce those deer skin hides to that workshop space in a ceremonial way to really bring the story of the deer the life of each deer she understands okay this was roadkill she ethically um, goes out and gets roadkill deer to understand the land upon which it dwelt, its essence as a deer and how that's going to transmute into the drum and transmute into your song and your soul. Mm. I mean, it, it, it threads you into the landscape in a way that's steeply familiar. Um, she said in, in our interview, people often don't know why they want to make a drum. They just feel called to it and it feels familiar it's one of the most ancestral things I think we can do. I think we were doing it before we were even homo sapiens. <laughs> um, so yeah, re-indigenizing ourselves, re- relearning the waterways, deepen your roots is an online journey um, that we're doing with Rooted Healing where we go through the elements and it's how can we meet the local waterways? How can we meet the rivers, the lakes, the ocean, the streams, the springs and learn their stories? learn their songs. We used to have the maidens of the wells who would sing songs and and give the the water to people passing through the village. And when the Romans came, that's when they, um, Sharon Blackie tells the story really well, and I perhaps won't, won't go into it because it's quite aggressive language, but that's when the land was raped, essentially, you know, and, and they came through and they yeah, raped the, the maidens of the wells and took the water and polluted the waters. And there's these old folk tales are actually telling that story of our indigenous people and how they that got tethered. And there's this beautiful essay. I'll see if I can find it so that you can maybe link it in the show notes. Oh, I forget her name now, but she's an indigenous woman and she's written an essay about her um, European ancestry and how she sees Europeans actually just as t- um, tethered from their indigenous landscapes, as is what, what is happening, what has been happening all over the world. It's just that we're further along the path of trauma from that. Yeah. It's curious, isn't it? Because I think there's, there's this kind of, you mentioned earlier, this renaissance. I think there is, among circles, a greater, deeper sense of reckoning with the fact that trauma and wounding perpetuates trauma and wounding. I mean, we know this anyway from, from the psych research that's been available for decades now, but at a cultural level, thinking about ways in which to map out the territory of where we are, like why has recent history been so horrific in these particular ways? Can we reassess the story of what what it means to be human and what it meant at different periods of time, coming back to the circular or cyclical model, perhaps of saying, well, pre-Roman, it might have been like this, pre this era, it might have been like this and kind of, but there's also within that, I think the other, I hate using the word invitation because it's so bloody overused. <laughs> but the other possibility, let's say, um, that can happen in those moments is to then start to point the finger and say, oh, God, the fucking Romans, they were just, you know, if it hadn't been for them. Yeah. But then their story started somewhere yeah. and their trauma and actions rooted in that trauma started somewhere. So then the kind of question that I land on is there are clearly tendencies that we have as a species to be extremely destructive there's also great capacity for healing and knowing the story and naming it in a way that is more truthful that looks at the complexities of our shared histories where we are in that trauma cycle finding ways to reconnect to move these 
feelings of, you mentioned earlier, of grief or shame, for instance. You know, if people come from the UK, often they won't want to say it's the UK. They'll say, oh, Wales or oh, Scotland. <laughs> and England is shrouded for some folks in a lot of shame. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, well, same. And so so there's kind of, but it points towards something really quite potent. There's There's something there that at some level we feel we don't want to hold, we want to relinquish, that we don't want to claim as our story. And at the same time, we're not the ones who've been perpetrating those traumas in the same way. We're just living in a system that's been inherited. So there's so much complexity and there's so much layering to it. But I think the most important thing that I keep coming back to, it's like, well, it's all part of human stories. And even in Indigenous traditions, there would have been forms of violence because that's part of what it is to be human. So then the question I'm left with is, how do we find a way to, to see our potential for both extraordinary suffering and ecstatic joy? How do we choose? How do we cultivate conditions in which more of these healing structures, rhythms, ways of being, choices can emerge so that we don't end up just kind of on the train tracks of a destructive civilization that's going to wipe everything out with it? Mm. But it does mean that we have to kind of not push aside and then... Um, estrange the really dark aspect because if we do that again that dualism cracks in and and I think we're at risk of perpetuating the same things so it's kind of like the love and light brigade yeah where actually we need to talk about the whole yeah oh Matt that's yeah it's a huge tendency in the sort of spiritual realms <laughs> um the cliques the spiritual cliques um to bypass mm -hmm. the decay the suffering and I've got many stories of being in many spaces where I've tried to talk about really difficult things and it's been shut down um, because people don't want to look there because they want to stay in a high vibration. Mm -hmm. um, but the question was, how, how can we all tap into our potential, I suppose? That potential for deep, deep love and acknowledgement of that complexity of the, the suffering and the, the death and the decay of life. I was speaking just last night with my partner and he said, well, it, um, is that a part of the, uh, what's it called? The natural world fallacy or something where you romanticize the idea that nature is perfect and harmonious. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering whether that in itself is coming from a place of romanticizing the idea that we're immortal until we die at a nice old age in a bed mm. because death and suffering is a part of nature. So um, when we see that nature can be harsh, can be brutal, I don't think that um, to say when, that we should be returning to that nature, we can't do that if we think we should also be immortal. Mm. It, there, there's a real tension there, I think. You kind of keep going around in loops. But you mentioned psilocybin a few times, and I haven't really spoken to it properly. Obviously, I'm deeply invested in psilocybin as a medicine. That's, we, we share psilocybin retreats with Ruth Healing, and it, you know, Almost more than other medicines, this is uh, Dr. Sam Gandhi's work has been showing this with his, with his colleagues, is that psilocybin is consistently showing an increase in our nature connectedness. And I believe it is that nature connectedness that is going to help us heal, that's going to help us remember. And nature is not all love and light. Nature is death and decay and compost and worms and ants. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so many so many expressions of life. Mm. 
And what we have as human beings that does make us special in whatever way we want to measure that specialness is plasticity, is neural plasticity, is the ability to adapt and to change and to sculpt our reality. And we have a lot of inhibitions in our brains. So we, we are actually seeing a very specific experience of the world through our neural inhibitors, more so than other animals. Apes in general have more of this. So that means we're more likely to be able to use tools to sculpt our reality, to create these magnificent buildings. We are the sculptors in a sense out of all of the different species. And that's amazing. That plasticity is incredible, but the psilocybin helps us tap into that primordial state of being where we can close down the default mode network. And that's often there's the part that we're having our identity, our thoughts of the past, our thoughts of the future in relationship to the self. We can close that down and we can remember that actually what it can feel like to put your hands in the dirt and to really feel that dirt and enjoy the tactility of it, to see much more than we're normally perceiving, to see the kind of energy flowing through plants. You know, I don't want to interject (laughs) what might happen. You can have all kinds of different experiences, but um, that's a, a powerful tool. And I, when I look at that what we're learning about mycelium at the moment. It's all such a new science with such novices in, in mycology, but Paul Stamets is just wonderful leading the way with, with the, this wonderful research in mycelium. And I mean, there's many other scientists, there's the mother tree as well, that wonderful book and Entangled Life, Merlin Sheldrake. And that is going to show us, I think, if we combine forces with that mycelial way of thinking, which is to connect the entire forest and to feed the entire forest and to use that plasticity, that neurocognitive ability, because mycelium is showing signs of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) If we can marry that with our amazing brains, our minds, our body minds, that's, I think, where we we might find hope for humanity we might find uh, that's one of the ways at least I really believe in that mm. and so on the question of hope because um, we're coming to time and actually well you and the podcast will get the treat of two sets of episodes here because uh, Ronnie and I are going to be chatting later this week for her podcast Rooted Healing mm-hmm. uh, and we'll dive into more of this there but for this particular episode um, before we close I'd like to ask when things get challenging or painful or dark, how do you orient yourself towards, usually I ask hope, but I think I want to say life. How do you orient yourself towards life on dark days? I think returning and coming back to life, especially in those moments of deep overwhelm and grief, it's so important that we can learn through all the different tools we may may be able to access or may be able to learn and develop if we can learn to be with ourselves in a non-linear way, can our inner elder, wise, old elder hold our current self and vice versa? If we're being triggered by something that is rooted in our childhood, can we learn to hold our inner child? Can we learn to really be with ourselves in that non-linear way? allow the emotions to arise, allow the process to unfold, allow whatever is there to be there, not suppress it, not hide it, not beat ourselves up for it being there. And if we're able to find ways to come out of the story that 
that doesn't help us, the story that we're not good enough, we're not worthy, like being in nature, like trying anything that connects us to each other, to our more than human kin, to nature, that's always going to be medicine in some way. And I also just want to honour those moments where you really are immobilised by it all. And sometimes those moments, all you can do is make a cup of tea, but make that cup of tea (laughs) in a ritualistic way. Can you honour the water and the plants that are involved? Can you feel that nourishment warm your heart and body and bring that smallest bit of comfort and really treasure it? There's so many ways and... It's also important to honour that life is very complex and very challenging at times. And so we we have to learn to be kind to ourselves in those moments. Mm-hmm. So if people want to find out more about rooted healing and the ancestral gathering that you're creating later in the year, where are the best places to find you? Yes, uh, rootedhealing.org. Everything's there. We're also on Instagram, Rooted Healing Co. on Instagram. And we have psilocybin retreats in the Netherlands, the ancestral gathering in the summer, and lots of other workshops and things online happening and bubbling away. Wonderful. Um, And if you want to hear more of these kinds of inquiries, please do check out Rooted Healing, the podcast. It's got Mm. a wonderful list of fascinating and heartfelt people to listen to, I've already started listening. I'm like on episode, well, it's not in order, but the third episode and I'm really enjoying it. So, um, Mm. yeah. So, Ronnie, thank you so much for being in conversation today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really love your podcast. I think it's a wonderful resource. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support, and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording, and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com. Explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources. And you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.